0: Now I don't know if you're into art, but when you are looking at art pieces, I heard that one thing that you have to do is look at the fine details, the the colors, uh, how every stroke is 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 different. But at the same time, sometimes you have to take a step backwards and look at the whole picture, uh, because a lot of times if you are so fixated on the details of the The picture or the art piece, then you lose sight of the whole meaning of the art piece. And that's exactly what's happening in our passage today. I I think we can spend individual sermons on each section at the end of Luke 3 and then today in Luke 4. But I want us to look at the whole picture. Uh, Starting from Luke 3, uh, verse 21, we have the baptism of Jesus and then we have the genealogy of Jesus. And then we have the temptation of Jesus. And we can look at these individual events, but there's one theme that runs through all these different passages. It's the fact that Jesus is the victorious Son of God. Jesus is the victorious Son of God. That's kind of the main thing that Luke wants us to pick up in today's passage. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus finally arrives on the scene. Now, John the Baptist, he did his job to give this great introduction to Jesus. He was saying how Jesus, he is the promised one, how he is the Messiah, how he is unworthy to even untie the sandals of Jesus, how he must decrease and Jesus must increase. So he has this incredible introduction of Jesus. And sure enough, Jesus arrives on the scene and it is is quite a scene. We see in verse 21 that Jesus is baptized. The moment he is baptized, as he is praying, the heavens are open. The Holy Spirit descends, comes down like a dove on Jesus. And you have a voice, a literal voice from heaven, says in verse 22, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. Now, there's so much that we can discuss in this passage, so many questions that we can ask, but the main thing that Luke wants us to take away from this passage is this, the Father, God the Father, he himself is acknowledging the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the beloved Son of God in which brings pleasure to the Father. Now, God did not say this about John the Baptist, he did not say this about all the men of faith this is the beloved Son of God, whom the Father is well, well pleased with. So that's what we see in the baptism of Jesus. And then you come to the genealogy of Jesus, which seems like there's no connection there. Just uh, a random passage with a long list of names that you can't really pronounce um, One reason why I didn't read this passage is because I wasn't confident that I would be able to pronounce all these names correctly. But the key thing that you have to understand about this genealogy is this. Comparing this with Matthew's genealogy, a key difference is that Luke, he takes Jesus' line all the way back to Adam. That's key. If you go to verse 38, as as Luke is tracking the, the line of Jesus, he says at the very end, The son of Adam who is the son of God. So again, you see that phrase, son, the son of God. So if you go all the way back, trace Jesus' line, you end up with Adam, who is the son of God. And so Jesus, he comes from the line of the son of God. He is the true son of God. And this is important because when you go to the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4, the first words that the devil utters to Jesus is this, if you are the son of God. And again, he says that in verse 9, if you are the Son of God. So as Jesus is being tempted, the thing that's on the plate is whether or not Jesus is the true Son of God. So the key theme that connects all these different events, the baptism of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, and even the temptation of Jesus is the fact that Jesus is the true victorious Son of God. That he came not just to to display who the Son of God is, but he came to destroy the work of the devil. It says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. So Jesus is a unique being. He comes as the ultimate Son of God. He also comes with a unique purpose, that he came to destroy the work of the devil. Now, we also know that uh, Adam was called the Son of God But we also know that Jesus came to replace Adam Adam, as the true son of God. So Jesus is the ultimate, the true, the victorious son of God who came to reverse Adam's curse. Now, a lot of times when a president or maybe a governor would begin his his time in the office uh, after their inauguration, they would make some first decisions, right? Right. And some of the first decisions that they make are not new decisions. They're not just trying to install new things, but they're trying to take away what has been placed in the past. They're trying to undo what has been done in the past. And that's what what Jesus is trying to do in this passage. Before he does anything new, as he is starting his public ministry, that baptism is really an inauguration. It's the beginning, a declaration that Jesus it has finally arrived, that he's coming out in public. And the first thing that he does is he undoes the work of the devil, that he reverses Adam's curse. We see some, some similarities between Jesus' temptation and Adam and Eve being tempted in the garden. We see that both Adam and Eve and Jesus, they were created um, in a way, in a supernatural way. Um, Adam does not have an earthly father uh, per se, and Jesus too does not have an earthly father. I mean, he has Joseph, but truly, he does not have an earthly father that gave him life. Both have a heavenly father. We also see that Adam, that he walked in the presence of God. Jesus today is full of the presence of God. We also see that Adam has a unique purpose to fill the earth with the glory of God. Jesus also was sent with a unique purpose to fill the earth with the glory of God. We also see that both individuals are being tempted by the devil. Now there are only two occasions where you see a human being go face to face with the devil. That you literally have the devil speaking words to a person. First in the garden, second here. Only two cases where the devil is actually speaking to a human being. Now you have the devil speaking to God in the book of Job, but to a person, it's only Adam and it's only Jesus, the two human beings. So we see that there's this unique connection between Jesus and Adam, and that's why Luke I believe placed this genealogy in between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. He wants us to see that not only is Jesus the savior of all because he connects all the way back to Adam, not just Abraham. Matthew, uh, his genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham to let people know that Jesus is the promised Messiah that was promised to the people of Israel. But Luke takes it a step further and says, well, this is the savior for all. That If you connect to, to Adam, which every single person here connects all the way back to Adam, then you can believe in Jesus as your Lord and and Savior. And so we see this clear connection. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. It says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is loved by the Father, who is pleasing to the Father, who is full of the Spirit, who is led by the Spirit, ends up where? The desert. The wilderness, and that's a very important lesson that we have to learn. That sometimes God allows us to walk in very dry, land, uh, dry, uh, dry land. That He allows us to go through some hardships. This happened in the book of Exodus as well with the people of God, who were also called the sons of God in Exodus 4:22. But we also see that the person who's tempting us is not necessarily God, but it is the devil. So. God allows us to be tempted in certain ways by the devil, but the temptation of the devil is not outside of God's reign or his rule. That God is still in complete control when it comes to the events of temptation. This was true in the garden, and this is true with the temptation of Jesus. Now we see the clear connection between Adam and Jesus, but the difference is this. Adam, when he was tempted, he failed and he sinned. When we see Israel walking in the wilderness, they were tempted, they failed, they disobeyed. Jesus, when he is tempted, he walks out victoriously. Uh, he, he has victory over the devil. And that's, that, that's an important part. We see that Jesus, although he has these connections to, to Adam, he's completely different from Adam. What Adam wasn't able to do, Jesus is now able to do because he is the better Adam. This is why it says in Romans 5.19, Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Adam, through his disobedience, many were made sinners. Through Jesus, his obedience, if you believe in him, many will be made righteous. Jesus is the victorious son who came to reverse Adam's Curse. And then the other figure that we see in today's passage is the devil. Now, I don't know if you like studying the devil, but I personally think there's a lot of benefits if you know your enemy. And so, um, what do we learn about the devil in today's passage? Now, Luke does not give us a formal introduction of where the devil came from or who he is, but there are several things that we can learn about the devil in this passage. Number one is this the devil knows you, especially your weaknesses. The devil knows your weaknesses look at verse 2 it says this for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he jesus ate nothing during those days and when they were ended he was hungry the devil said to him jesus if you are the son of god command this stone to become bread what perfect timing and what perfect temptation Jesus literally did not eat food for 40 days. He probably drank water because we know that uh, a human being cannot survive um, uh, for 40 days without water, but it is possible to survive uh, without food and drinking water. Uh, So we see that Jesus, he is weak. Most likely he did fast for 40 days. He is incredibly hungry at this point and the devil knows it. And the devil brings this temptation that that, that points to the weakest part of Jesus right now, his physical weakness. And he says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So the devil, he goes to Jesus at the right timing, at the right place, with the right temptation. In the same way, the devil knows you. The devil knows me. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. Some of us, we struggle maybe with uh, laziness maybe with pride some of us might struggle with maybe being too um too driven by our desires or or anger whatever it might be like we have different weaknesses we have different points where if you push those buttons that we would explode well here's here's here's, here's what we see in the bible the devil know exact knows exactly what buttons to push that he knows your weakness now next sunday we're gonna have the super bowl right, hopefully uh, you'll be able to enjoy the Super Bowl. I love the Super Bowl because, you know, especially with um, football, it's not just a game of athleticism, it's a game of strategy, right? For two weeks, the two teams prepare for the other team. They come up with different strategies. They're not just preparing physically, but they're preparing mentally, strategically. And the whole thing is that they're drawing up a game plan. They're studying film day and night to find the other team's weakness, And the game plan is to attack the weakness of the opponent. Did you know that the devil has an entire game book against you? That he has a a, a custom game plan just for your life, for your heart. Because he knows you. He knows your weakness. He knows when you are most vulnerable. He knows the place that, that you can be easily attacked. He knows easily how how to get you upset and and to move you away from God. He knows all those things. The devil knows your weakness. The second thing that we see is the devil knows how to use God's word. The devil knows how to use God's word. It's interesting that the first thing that the devil would say to Jesus is, if you are the son of God, why is this ironic? Because literally the chapter before, just a couple verses before, the father told the son, you are my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Like, that is a truth. Like, the father is well pleased in the son. And yet, the devil, when he comes to chapter 4, he turns that fact into a question. And in the same way, a lot of times the devil turns a lot of the different truth that we believe about God into a question we see this in in the garden as well in genesis 2 we see that adam and eve they were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil the moment that you eat from it you will die what do you see in genesis 3 the serpent comes and says well did god really say that you can't eat from that tree so you see that the devil, he's really good at changing a truth into a question, that he makes you question God's word. He's really good at using God's word. He either misquotes it or use it out of context, which is very dangerous because it can mislead you. It could be deceiving. So the devil knows your weaknesses. The devil even knows the word of God. And his schemes are sneaky and subtle. His schemes are sneaky and subtle. He's not going to jump into your life with, with guns, with fire, with weapons of mass destruction to destroy you. No, he's going to come in a very subtle way, in a way that he just wants to have a conversation with you, in a casual way. And it seems like, you know, he's not that big of a threat. That's probably why Eve engaged in this conversation with the serpent. And you see that the devil, he is very sneaky and subtle with his schemes. So we see... A little bit about the devil, and now we're going to look at the temptations, how sneaky it is. Look at verse 3. It says this, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Command this stone to become bread. Now, I did not understand why this was such a big deal when I was young. I thought it would be pretty cool. Like If you can change some stones into bread, like that's a cool magic trick. And we know that Jesus is able to do this because later on, he takes a kid's happy meal, uh, five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish, and he turns it into a feast for 5,000 plus people. Like we know that Jesus can create food supernaturally. Like that's not a question. So why not at this very moment when Jesus is starving, when he is hungry, why not just go ahead and make some food for himself. That's exactly what the Jesus is G- being tempted with. The devil is saying, if you are the son of God, take care of yourself. Come on. Uh, you deserve it. You, you, you deserve to be satisfied, to have this food. It sounds pretty logical. It sounds like you know, this is something that is reasonable for Jesus to do. But notice what Jesus says in, in verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread Alone. So the first temptation is this, the temptation of the devil. I encourage you to write this down. You have the power and the right to satisfy your own needs. You have the power and the right to satisfy your own needs. The devil was telling Jesus, if you are the son of God, you have the power and the right to make food for yourself to satisfy your own needs. And what Jesus says, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, And Matthew actually quotes the rest of the passage as well in Deuteronomy 3, which says, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now notice two things. Number one, Jesus is not a hater of food. He's not saying food is unimportant in your life. In fact, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He knows that men have to live by bread, that we need food to survive. We need nourishments in our body in order to operate, in order to live our lives. Food is important. So don't go home and starve yourself Like after this, this, this message. No, food is important. There are a lot of things that are important in your life. I think family is important. I think water is important. I think education is important. There's a lot of things that are necessary and are important in your life, but here's the claim that Jesus is making and what the Bible is making. Food is not the ultimate thing in life. Food is important, but it should never be the ultimate thing in life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That don't make your life simply where you are chasing basic needs in your life. I think that's what the devil wants us to do. He wants to look at us to look at our lives and he wants us to focus on the basic needs of our lives, which are really important, but they should never become the ultimate thing. Jesus instead says, I Feast on the word of God. And later he says in John four thirty four, my food is to do the will of my father. He says, there's something that's more satisfying to my soul rather than stuffing my stomach with food. I am satisfied with the word of God and when I do the will of God. That true satisfaction and purpose and meaning in this life is found not on the things that I indulge in and consume, but the things that I worship, which is God alone. He is my true satisfaction. I think the same temptation exists in our hearts today, where we have to cherish some of the necessities in life, career, maybe some people might say, you need a good amount of savings in order to live a certain life, you need to have a family, you need to take care of your own health, you need to take care of of different things in your life, and all of that is true. Like, we're not neglecting the importance of those necessities, but we can't make those things the ultimate thing in our life. The ultimate pursuit of our life can't be just things that are necessary in our life. It has to be the father because he is the one who gives us everything that we need. He's the one who provides all our needs. And so what Jesus is saying is this, rather than using my ability and my position to feast on my needs, I'm going to use it to glorify God and do the will of the father. That's the decision that he makes. So, in the face of, of, of Satan's lie, he says, I'm going to be the obedient son that I was called to be. So temptation number one is you're, you have power and right to satisfy your own needs. And Jesus says, well, although you might have that right, your ultimate calling is not just to be satisfied with the things of this world, but is to be satisfied with your heavenly father, his word and his will. Temptation number one. Temptation number two is found in verse five through seven. It says the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and a moment of time and said to him, To you I give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to you whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. There's a lot going on, right? Uh, Jesus, he sees all the kingdoms in its glory, and the devil, we don't know how true the statement is, but the devil says, I can give this to you right now. The devil knows the plan of God. He knows that ultimately Jesus is going to go to the cross and, and, and defeat death and, and, and rise in victory and, and, and be clothed in glory. And he knows all that. And so he says this. You don't have to wait to the cross. You can have that right now. Like You can have this crown before the cross. You can have the crown without, without the cross. Without suffering, you can have glory. That's the second lie. That you can have the crown without the cross. That you can have glory without suffering. There's an easy way that I can accomplish what you're trying to do in your life right now. You simply worship me. You bow down to me. Notice that the devil wants to be praised. He wants glory. And that's the whole thing about the devil. He wants to elevate himself above who he really is. He wants to take the worship that belongs to God alone. It's such a subtle way that the devil is tempting Jesus. You know why? Because he never says you should stop worshiping God the Father. He never says you should turn away from God. All he's saying is this, while you're worshiping God, worship me as well. The thing that he's going after is not the worship of God, it's the worship of God alone, which is the very first commandment. You should have no other God before me. You can't worship God and other things. The Bible makes that very clear, and yet the lie of the devil is this. The easy pathway is to worship God and also have a couple of th- other things that you worship to compromise your faith. If you want the crown without the glory, come on, make some tweaks in your life. You don't have to stick to the book. You don't have to stick to every word. You don't have to honor God in all those different ways. You, there's an easier pathway to accomplish what you want. And isn't that what was so intriguing to, to Adam and Eve, right? When the serpent offered them, we'll take from the tree of knowledge good evil because... The moment you eat of it, you will not die, but your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So the promise was that you don't have to worship God alone to find satisfaction and pleasure and joy in your life. You can be your own God. That worshiping God alone is not the only way. And that was a lie that they believed in and they felt for it walked into disobedience, but we see Jesus, he quotes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 again. He summarizes really that beautiful chapter of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You should fear God. You shall serve him alone. So Jesus is quoting all these things, saying that Satan, I know what you're trying to do. It's not about just worshiping God. It's worshiping God alone. So he is, he's not shaken by the the schemes of the devil. So we we see these two lies. Take things for yourself first. Take care of yourself first. And then the lie is that there's an easier road ahead of you. Um, You don't have to go through this hard Christian life and follow the road of sanctification. You don't have to stick to the book in order to please God and to honor God and live in glory. There are easier ways to do that. Just compromise your faith. I'm not saying that you don't have to be a Christian. Just don't be like this super Christian trying to do everything by the book. That's the lie that the devil wants you to believe in and wants me to believe in. The third temptation is this. You should test God before you trust God. You should test God before you trust God. Look at verse nine. It says this, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Now, it's quite amazing. Now, Jesus not just Jesus, but not the devil is quoting scripture. So from Psalm 91, he says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil says to Jesus, Well, you like scripture, huh? You like God's word. Let me share something in God's word in Psalm 91, 11 and 12, where that beautiful Psalm, how God is a mighty fortress. A, a refuge place for those who believe in him. Let me tell you what happens. If you throw yourself from this high place, the Bible says that he will command his angels to guard you in all your ways. So throw yourself from this place. Let's see how true God is to his word. Put God to the test. That's, that's what he's trying to do. And what Jesus says is this. Quoting from Deuteronomy 6 one more time, it says, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. You don't test God, you trust God. I don't have to test God in order to trust in Him. He is already trustworthy. There's no need for me to seek for any proof from God. You know, this might be very subtle, but when you are testing God, the reason why that's such a big deal is this it means that you're calling the shots, that you're trying to determine whether or not God is worthy. That you, you are wanting God to stick to your way. Some of us say, well, God, if you allow me to have this in my life, if you do this miracle in my life, then I'll automatically believe you. I'll put you to the test. If you get me into this school, into this job, if you give me this person so that I can pursue marriage, like God, that will be my evidence. And the Bible says, well, no, you don't put God to the test. You trust God based on his word. God, he doesn't have to be tested. Like, his word is already trustworthy. The, the critical mistake that Adam and Eve made in the garden was this. Their judgment was supposed to be formed by God's word, but somehow they thought that they could judge God's word, determine whether or not it is true, whether or not it is trustworthy. And they f- firmly believe that God was lying to them, that he was withholding something good from them, because they believed that the moment that they took from the fruit, just like the snake said, that they will not perish, but their eyes will be open and be like God. So they put God to the test, and as a result, they, they fell into temptation and fell into sin. Jesus, instead of testing God, decided, no, I'm going to trust God because he already is trustworthy. I don't need further proof. He literally just said a couple verses ago that I'm his beloved son, whom he is well pleased in. I know that I can trust him. I don't have to put him to the test. Same is true about your life. You don't have to put God to the test. You trust him based on his word and his promises. So three clear temptations that are applicable for our lives that we can see in our everyday life. So a couple just observations and applications that I want to make uh, for you to think about as you go home. Number one is this application. Number one, you have to be aware that there is an enemy out there, that you have the devil who's actively scheming against you, who's planning against you, who wants you to be destroyed, who wants you to fall away from God the Father. If you don't experience this 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 pull, spiritual pull or temptation and 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 you don't feel the struggle in your life, most likely it's because you're living in the kingdom of darkness. And therefore there's nothing to to struggle with. Like it's it's comfortable there, but if you begin to walk in the light, notice that it's only when Jesus enters into this 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 Thing where heaven is open, people are confirming that he is the son of God, it's only when heaven is open that hell is broken loose, that these temptations are flooding into the gates of of, of the life of Jesus Christ. In the same way, a lot of times when you begin to become serious about Jesus, that's when temptations will flood into your life because before, the devil could just leave you and you will perish. But now, if you are on the track of righteousness, then he has to do something to, to, to take you away from God's kingdom. And so he knows that the, thing, the, the, the time is urgent. So he's trying to scheme against you. So know that you have a real enemy out there in the devil. Number two is this. The, the resources that Jesus uses to withhold the temptations are available to us as well. Two things. The Spirit and the Word. Jesus was He was filled with the word of God. He was filled with the spirit of God. We see the spirit of God in verse one of chapter four. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the spirit. You see in verse 14, after this temptation, Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. So from beginning to end, Jesus is walking in the power of the spirit, but also we see that he is full of the word of God. We see that for every specific temptation that the devil has, Jesus has a very specific answer in God's word. And that's the problem that we face a lot of times because we face specific temptations and yet we have such a general understanding of God's word that we have no idea how to combat that specific lie. We kind of have an idea of what God's word says, but we struggle to fight that specific temptation because we don't know exactly what we should hold on to in God's word. I think the other thing that we see is that Jesus, he's not just quoting scripture just like the devil, but he's living by the word. He's living according to God's word. We see this through and through. It's not that he just says men shall not live on bread alone. Literally, his life was not about bread. It was about the will of the Father. He says that I should never put God to the test. Even in his deepest, darkest moments, he did not dare to test the Father and his heart. He never questioned once the Father. You see, through and through, Jesus lived by the word. And he was living out the reality in Psalm 119, 11. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Storing up God's word on your phone is not good enough. Storing up God's word in your head is not good enough. The Bible says you have to store God's word in your heart, meaning you have to live it out. You have to hold on to it. You have to believe in it. And so you have the spirit of God if you are in Christ. You have the word of God in your hands. But here's the thing the last application point if you think you can go home today and you recognize the te- temptations of the devil and you recognize you have resources to combat the temptations and you feel like your chances are pretty good because now you know the strategy of the devil and you know the resources that you have in jesus christ i guarantee you you are going to fall and fail that you're never going to win this battle if you try to fight this battle alone and that's the point it says in verse 13 and when the devil had Ended every temptation. He departed from Him, Jesus, until an opportune time. Notice that these three temptations were not the only temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Most likely, this is not the last time that Jesus that Jesus gonna face these temptations. It says later in the opportune time, the devil comes back with these temptations. So why do we have this today in our passage? Well, remember Luke said that he's writing these things so that we may have certainty that Jesus, He is the Christ. We can have confidence in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's not writing these things so that you can follow Jesus' example. Yeah, Partially, yes, that's true. But before you can follow his example, you have to trust in his work. That you have to believe that he is the son of God, the victorious son of God that withhold every temptation and went all the way to the cross. The trend that we see in Jesus' life is exactly what we see in chapter 4, that he withholds every temptation on the cross with, with, with God's word. He was literally quoting scripture when things were really difficult for him to stay on the cross. We also see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he really didn't want to go to the cross in his flesh. He was asking the Father, if it's possible, can you remove this cup from me? So he was dealing with this temptation Even the night before, he he died on the cross. And yet, he comes to this conclusion saying that not my, my, my will, but your will be done, God. Instead of following his desires, he says, Father, your will is far more important than mine. And he says, the moment that Peter takes out a sword when Jesus is arrested and he cuts the ear of a servant of the high priest, Jesus says to Peter, hey, do you not know that I have the ability right now to call 12 legions of angels? That I can bring heaven down if I want to. Like, that's not the problem. Supernatural things, that's not the issue. Like, I'm here not to just perform miracles, but to save the world, to make a way for sinners like you. And so Jesus walked victoriously all the way to the cross in every step of the way. He relied on God's word. He was full of the Spirit, and he with withhold the temptations of the devil and he victoriously uh, rose again on the third day and because of jesus now we have a way we have a better adam where paul says now through him we have life in jesus we have hope for eternal life in jesus we have hope in our daily fight with the devil temptation and sin so the main application today is not Go home, read your Bible, spend time with God, and try to fight off the devil by yourself. The main application is this. You cannot live life apart from Jesus, apart from his grace. Hebrews 4, 15, 16 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus endured every temptation, yet without sin. But here's the incredible invitation in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The call is not just to follow Jesus' example and live a good life. The call is to fall at the feet of Jesus, receive mercy through Jesus, receive help from Jesus at time of need. You can't live life apart from Jesus. And Jesus is showing, though, when you are one with Jesus, when you are united with him in Christ, in faith, through God's grace, then you can withhold the temptations of the devil and walk victoriously as sons and daughters of God. So let's believe in him. Let's trust in him. Let's not put God to the test today, but let's trust his incredible plan. Amen? Let's pray.